Let's pray. Father, we come before you eager to know more about what it means to worship. It's sometimes daunting to think that we do not worship appropriately, and then it sounds like a chore, then it sounds like a, a problem, then it sounds like a vice. But Lord, may we know the joy of worship, and may you teach us the joy of children as we follow you. And all this we ask in Christ's name, amen. Before I get going, I was sent a text this morning very early. I guess someone else was doing something else when it was raining outside. Florida State University has done a fine bit of research in the past year or so, and they have come to a decisive conclusion that women in marriage are far more happy when their spouse is not as good looking as they are. <laughs> that gives me comfort, <laughs> as it does many of you here in this room. And as a Gator fan, I'm, I want to say I'm very glad the Seminoles are finally doing something important. <clears throat> uh, we're looking at Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is, you might say, one of the main places to, to come to, to describe or to discuss worship. In fact, if you have a mental uh, folder uh, where you try to say, okay, where are the main places in the Bible where I go to look at the subject of worship, this is one of them. This is at least at the very top, if not number one. In fact, for most of church history, this was the normal call to worship. It was called the Venite. Uh, and what the Venite is, is this, the opening line. And we actually began worship today with this, uh, these couple of verses. It's, O come, let us worship, uh, and let us give thanks and praise to the Lord our God in these things. And so Psalm 95 has always been one of the main go-to places where people look at what is worship, and how are we to be oriented to God in worship? The problem with the psalm is it's a bit strange by the end, at least when you expect to find things there. About two-thirds of the psalm, you're like, yes, yes, okay, good, I, I can track with that. Then it seems to pivot, and it gives some rather condemnatory language. Suddenly, it's talking about God loathing people. And that there are these people that were rejected in these types of things. And you go, well, that's not very, um, feels good. So what's going on there? And it's, when you understand the two pieces back to back and as a unit, I think it'll make a lot more sense. Because what's going on here is not, uh, you better come and worship. A, a, a wagging of the finger. It, it's not a, 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 or else built into this. Even though it might seem like it. Rather, what it's saying is, in essence, you all worship something, come and worship the true God. But if you come and worship the true God inappropriately, pridefully, selfishly, all about you and not about who you are as a child of God, then what happens is, is you break the, the relationship down and things begin to go chaotic in one's life. So on the one hand, what this is saying is, is since you all worship, worship the true God. And it gives reasons why. Then it says, now when you come to the true God, do not do it like has been done before when a generation 
uh, jumped off the rails and made it all about them and tried to pull things from God and use him for their own joy and their own pleasure, which was essentially like a pagan god, which was a gumball machine in the sky. If you hit it right, if you put the right coin in, you get what you want. It's magic. It's, it's not real worship, and it's not the true God. So the warning built in there and all of this is, is still about worship. It's not as if someone tacked on some, some grumpy verses there at the end. It's all the same theme. So let's look at those two pieces. First, the opening verses all the way down um, uh, in to the end, uh, sorry, to the beginning of ch- uh, to verse 8, I should say. So the first seven verses are all about what is worship. And it begins not with, uh, you might say, a discourse or a lecture. It actually begins with a kind of bubbling over joy. The translator of the ESV, the translators have actually added the word O in there, which in normal language in the English uh, poetry, it's a way of saying like, oh, let's go. It's It's an excited, let's go and worship God. It's not a Come on, let's go worship God, as some of you might have to do sometimes with young children. Like, come on, get in the car. It's, it's not that language. It's not a, please, can we get in the car? Can we go? Can we go worship? It's rather a, oh, can we go and worship? It's actually beginning the, in a posture of pure excitement, pure joy. And what it's doing is it's bubbling over in the sense of when you know who God is and you know what he has done, then worship actually becomes exciting. Not always in the sense of um, uh, mere sort of the tingles and the goosebumps, but exciting in the sense of, I know who he is. It's the feeling of being purely awake. It's the feeling of finally getting it, of, of life finally clicking together. Having chased our own ends and our own prideful desires and all these things for years, suddenly we get the posture correctly and we know who God is and who we are as his creatures. Because sinful, prideful ways of understanding ourselves says, no, I'm the Lord. I am the ultimate decider of everything. But when you posture yourself beneath the God of heaven and earth, suddenly it's like your eyes are opened. And in that sense, it's, oh, let us come. Oh, let's, let's worship now. Let's come in with a joyful noise. One of the fun things to do when you have young kids and you're in sort of a, a youth phase or whatever is to go around the room, particularly if they're in elementary school, and ask them to do their joyful noise. <laughs> what would be your joyful noise if you had to offer one? And the kids are great because they don't care and they're not really ashamed, so they just kind of make all kinds of squeaks and squeals and noises. But what's going on here is this is not quiet, cerebral, uh, merely internal worship. Rather, it's the language of praise, and our lips are opened, and we say things, and we ascribe things to God, and we are just so ready to do these things in worship. It's not a chore, in other words. When you know who God is, and you know who we are as his creatures, this is not a chore. Rather, it's joyous. Because many of you, in fact, all of you can understand that at some point in your life before, when you did not know Christ, the things you were chasing, the things you were most focused on, never, ever gave you that level of joy. 
They may have given you temporary pleasure. They may have given you a little blip on the screen, a slight uptick in the, the things that you find to be fun, but it was always empty, and there was always something else that you had to chase after it. But then, then, when you found out who God was, and you bent the knee, and you made yourself second, and you put Him as the one enthroned on heaven and earth, and you understood the truth of that, suddenly there was no need to fill that up anymore. So worship begins first and foremost in terms of posture. In terms of posture. Because when you know who God is, and you know what he has done, the worship is not necessarily a challenge. You understand the relationship. And that's what all this language is here, that he is a great king above all gods, uh, that in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are also his the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. This is all Genesis language. This is creator language. This is, this is the thing Job got, uh, re responded back to him when he got uppity with God. God was like, I'm sorry? Where were you when? Did you make the fill in the blank? Keep going. Last night, I was in the airport flying back from Houston, um, and uh, I was supposed to be doing other things, uh, so I decided not to do those and said, look at YouTube. Um, and so I got my phone out, and I was just monkeying around, looking at whatever YouTube told me uh, to watch at that moment. Uh, and the very first thing it popped up was uh, a, a, vi a somewhat viral video about the scale, a scale model that someone had made of our solar system. Just ours, by the way. So the sun to Pluto, if you still call Pluto a planet. Um, but a, a scale model, and the, it opened this video with this kind of humorous look at when our children make scale models, quote-unquote, of the universe, the little dioramas and these things, they're completely not to scale. And he took a piece of paper out about so big, and he drew the circles, and he said, if you had to make this to scale, it would be microscopically small to make it all work on a piece of paper. So he said, how about this? He goes, I'll, I'll make it to scale. So he has to drive to the desert to make it to scale. And so what he ends up doing is he, he creates a, a, a scale model of the sun, which is several meters uh, big. I don't know what a meter is, I'm from America, but it was about this big in his hands. Um, and so he puts that in the middle of the desert, and he has to have a space, a ring of seven miles, a radius of seven miles to be able to make the solar system, just this one solar system, to scale. And they have to get up, I kid you not, onto a mountain with a camera to look down onto it to even be able to see the solar system to scale as they are making it. The earth in this scale is a marble. That's how big just our solar system is. And then he went on and he said, okay, if you were to go from our solar system to the nearest solar system, it would be from that marble the distance of 3,000 miles. And he kept going, and the scale got bigger, and suddenly you're just kind of like Neo in the Matrix, and it's just, whoa. Like, you have no category for this immensity, this, this amazing creation. The way it's held together, the, 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 just the sheer volume of it, and that's just at the big scale. You can go all kinds of places over the earth, and what you, what you do when you notice creation, when you notice the work of his hands, is you just say, our God is amazing. What he has done is so incredible. What am I in comparison to that? I can barely even choose my own breakfast in the morning. 
I can barely even decide what I'm going to do with my day. And I'm going to put myself over against God, the one who created all of these things, the king of heaven and earth. So worship begins with posture. It begins with realizing where we are in the equation. We are not an equal with God, and as the old Jewish saying goes, we're also not the neck. You know, God is the head, we get to be the neck. We get to move the thing around. We are rather the creatures, the works of his hands. We are the ones who give worship. We're not the ones who need to be worshiped. Now, that's all fine and good, and I, think, I don't think anyone would disagree with what I've just said. However, here's the thing. Often when that is said, you're a creature and God is the great creator, it doesn't have built within it, I find, at least in the way we tend to talk about it, this language of joy. It's rather the language of fear sometimes. But notice in this psalm that it doesn't go from that language of God as creator and then start to describe him as remote and far off and someone who's not with us, and he's just the the great clockmaker who made the world, and therefore we have to sort of ascribe some name to him and keep going on about our day. The language from the very beginning is actually intimate. It's deeply, deeply relational. And in fact, that's the thing that sometimes gets missing is you can look at these wonderful works of God's hands, the creation. I I can be blown away by a scale model of the solar system. There can be all kinds of reasons to be impressed. But being impressed is not the same thing as being in love, as loving who God is. What you might say at the beginning of these verses, what, what is going on here, there's actually a human analogy. A lot of you, when you met your significant other, if you're married or if you've had a relationship, you know what it's like when you meet someone, you begin to go out, and you're beginning to really think, oh, this might be the one. And you haven't yet had the talk with your friends about who this person is. Maybe a friend who's moved away, or they haven't met the new so-and-so in your life. And the beginning verses here are like that, in the sense that When you finally get with that friend and you finally go have coffee or lunch or something, do you hold back the stories about what's been happening in your life? No. Usually you you just, like a fire hose, shoot every bit of information at at your friend. i got to tell you about this guy. He's this. He's great. We went on this date. We did this. You start, suddenly everything overflows because why? There is this deep and abiding relationship with just another person that you want to tell other people about that this new thing is changing you and you're in love and there's this relationship that now whenever you see or have an opportunity to talk to someone, you want to say, let me tell you about so-and-so. Let me tell you about so-and-so. Let me tell you what's going on in my life these days. It's a love relationship. It's not just facts. It's a relationship that's changing you and that's just with another human. What's going on here is, oh, let us come and worship God, is the language of that lover, of the wooer of our souls. God himself that says, I am going to be intimate with you, I love you, you are mine. And then the opening verses are, let's talk about this. Let's let's praise him. Let's open our lips and sing. Let's confess even. He is our Lord and our God. And that's what worship looks like. It looks like a loving relationship with someone who is putting us in our place, and that is so contradictory to the modern world. 
Because in the modern world, love is supposed to be the thing that never hampers, never hinders, never tells you you're less than you think you are. But rather, when we worship God, what? We learn that we're not the center of the universe. We learn that we are prideful and that we need to be humble. But in that, we are awake. Our eyes are opened and we see the truth. We see that God himself is the focus of our worship. All right. So what about all these um, condemnatory verses, so to speak, at the end? The language, I mean, most of you are going, okay, um, hardening your hearts at Meribah and on the day of Massa in the wilderness, the fathers put me to the test uh, and put me uh, to the proof, um, though they had seen my work. For 40 days, I loathed the generation. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Doesn't sound as if the, the loving, loving, wooing language there at the beginning is going on here. Well, what those verses are describing at the end, you might say, is the opposite of that relationship I was just describing in the analogy of you and um, your spouse when you were first dating. Because for every good relationship, we also know of broken relationships, of relationships that began very much mutual, very much in love, very much um, uh, uh, sort of bubbling over with praise, and then you see them years on, and they despise each other. They don't care for each other. They speak unkind words. They do not give each other the respect they, de- they deserve, those types of things. You see broken relationships. What you're seeing described here is one of the most profoundly disappointing broken relationships that God had, uh, that, that is described, I should say, in the Old Testament, which is God has rescued Israel from Egypt, and then they grumble. God has brought them out in the most miraculous of ways, and yet they're going, what gives, God? Why, why, not? why don't I have more? That he's literally parted waters so that they can walk on dry land to get away from an army that's attacking them. And on the other side, they're t- tapping their foot going, where are you, God? What's going on? I've got a schedule to keep. Where, where are things? Can we get there? That a relationship begun by God rescuing Israel out of Egypt very quickly disintegrated into what gives God? Where are you, God? Why, why, why am I in this wilderness, God? Why do I have to eat uh, manna from heaven again, God? I know it's manna coming down from heaven, but still, come on, it's getting kind of old. I don't even have salt down here. What's going on, God? That kind of a thing. The grumbling of a broken relationship is what's being described here. C.S. Lewis has a short little book on the Psalms. It's pretty good, by and large, um, but one of the things he, uh, at least in the introduction, starts to wrestle with is this problem that you're seeing in this verse, which is when you and I approach this, it's one thing to say, I want to praise, okay, I want to praise. But Lewis began to worry that when there's language of or else, or obedience, or you better not do it like them, or any of those types of things, that you're inviting a unbiblical relationship, that what you're saying is, you better worship God like this or else. And what he begins to say is he reflected on that and he studied the Psalms, and what he came to a conclusion on is that's not what the Psalms are saying when they're offering these stories, like here, of failed worship. That when you see stories like this, it's not the failure of the people to be obedient. It's the failure of worship itself because they've broken the relationship. 
So it's not obedience that brings the worship, it's rather one's worship that brings the obedience. Knowing your position, knowing your place before God, knowing that he rescued you, you didn't help. You weren't on that cross, you weren't anywhere near it. You did not rescue yourself. But whenever you make obedience first, then the worship after move becomes the thing that you do to keep yourself in. I have done pretty well by my life. I'm a very good Christian. Now I come even when it's raining outside and everyone else turned around and went home. That kind of a thing. Obedience then becomes the standard. What Lewis says is rather worship is the standard. Joy, relationship is the standard. After that comes the obedience. And he likens it to riding horseback. And he said, the problem with our worship is that we think we are good riders, and we're not good riders. We hold the reins awkwardly, and we nearly fall off all the time. And he said, what worship is, is being studied, being taught, being discipled in how to ride well. And he said, the ultimate goal of worship is to be galloping without fear of failure or without fear of falling off. And if you've ridden a horse, you know exactly what he's talking about. You get on the saddle, you're clutching it with your knees, you have your feet awkwardly in the stirrups, you're just hoping this beast doesn't take off with any speed more than a trot. You're being more carried along like a sack of flour than you are riding anything. There is no contribution you're making in this relationship. You're rather just holding on for dear life. What Lewis says is the goal of worship, the the school of worship, the life of worship, is getting to the point where some of you have gotten, if you've ever ridden horseback for long, I haven't, but I know others who have, where it feels effortless, and you are still being carried. You're not running yourself, but it feels effortless, and it becomes like a dance, I've been told, where the fast galloping is the rider is knowing exactly when to bounce and when to ride and how to hold the saddle with their knees, and they're doing it just the right way to where you are effortlessly as if you were part of the dance of the rider. Lewis says that's worship. That's the goal. Not to get off and try to carry the horse yourself, not to believe that you're already the perfect rider when you have done nothing but come, but rather to learn the dance to learn the story, to learn to confess with, free, with, with freedom your sins, to learn to praise with pure joy and abandon. Lois says when you do those things, it becomes like a writer. You become more schooled. You become graceful, you might say. So what is worship? Fundamentally, worship is knowing who you are, and then it's knowing what you're intended to be. Who you are is an image of God. A sinner, one who cannot save themselves. What you're intended to be, though, is one who bends the knee to the Lord, who comes to the cross, who comes to Christ and says, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And then when you do that, you become like the rider. Suddenly, life is about learning the dance. Suddenly, life is about learning the steps. It's about figuring out how to ride effortlessly, though you begin with these fumbling little uh, trots, and it's all you can do just to stay on the saddle. And Lewis says sometimes that saddle, it gets a bit cumbersome, and sometimes you fall off, but the goal of the rider is always to get back on. 
That's worship. It's not obedience first, and you do worship perfectly, and then God goes, great, here are some kudos, or here's some blessing, or here's you know, what you've always been longing for. Rather, what God says is, I'm what you've always been longing for. Come to me, and everything else will be added unto you. Come to me as my child. Come and don't break the relationship like they did in the wilderness and say, where are you, God? What gives, God? I've done everything for you, God. I've been worshiping you. Why is this happening, God? Rather, come to me. I am what you need. Then that joy bubbles over. Then your posture, your position becomes not this bend the knee or else, but rather I bend the knee freely because I see who I am before you. And knowing who I am makes me joy-filled and easy to praise, quick to praise, loving to praise, just like a lover can easily tell uh, their friends all about the one they love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the way that you position us uh, in this life, that it's all about love first, that it's all about understanding our position before you, that it's always about coming with empty hands to you first, that, and then you fill them up. Lord, uh, may we be like the rider. May we learn to gallop. May we not see ourselves as the one who bring worship by our own effort, but rather the ones who get to worship, who understand that you are the one who makes us complete, who gives us joy. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.